When I was first starting in ministry about 10 years ago, I remember thinking that as a pastor, a church should maybe be like a restaurant. That was the metaphor that I was using in my head where maybe when you come to church, you should be greeted, served the perfect meal, this sermon, and you're, you're to have this amazing experience that you leave and tell your friends about. And like any good restaurant, you bring your friends to that restaurant or that church and they come back and they enjoy themselves but the problem with that is, is that the Bible doesn't talk about the church that way. And as I've grown as a pastor, I've realized it's an inherently a consumeristic vision of the church that exchanges uh, goods for services. Like you come, you tithe, you pay, and you have this mind-blowing experience, and you feel spiritually filled, and then you leave. And what I realized was that the Bible talks more about the church like a family meal. A family meal has... Uh, a mess at the beginning. It involves chopping vegetables and preparing dishes and putting butter in the pan. And, and then afterwards is a total mess because you got to do all the dishes. But in the middle, there's something precious. In the middle, there's something beautiful. But all contribute to that beautiful moment in the middle. I, I also just started to realize over my time as a pastor that every one of us brings expectations into the church, just like I did. I brought this kind of expectation that this is how the church should run and how the church should be. And because it's my job, I should think deeply about that and execute it perfectly. But in actuality, all of our expectations are different about what a church should be. Should it offer this or offer that? Should it have this kind of music or that kind of music? What are the kinds of people? Should it be all young people, all old people? Should it be mixed generations? We come into churches with an expectation. What should we expect of a church? It, it, are we having too lofty of opinions in an age of everyone having their opinion? What do we expect from a church? We're starting the series, The Perfect Church and Other Lies You've Heard, because we're filled with these kind of lies, whether we know it or not. And if, you were to t if I were to ask you, do you think the church should be perfect? You would answer it the same way I, if I asked you, should all people be perfect? You would say, of course not, of course not. But in the same way, you would have sneaky expectations of the church, just like we have sneaky expectations of people. You see, we love the term nobody's perfect when it benefits us. But when it doesn't benefit us, we expect other people to be perfect. And likewise with church. If we're not involved in it, we expect it to be perfect. But if we're involved in it, we expect grace. You see, these expectations sneak in. And although we would outright say, man, I know the church should not be perfect, a lot of us walk around through our stories and our life expecting the church to meet every single need that we could possibly have and to anticipate that need before we even have it. I want to explore this over the next couple of weeks. Today, I want to talk about this idea, this ideal that everything in a church should be perfect, that we should be attaining to this type of perfection, because I don't think that's true. I think that's a lie. And each week for the next three weeks, I want to uncover different lies you have heard or have been told about the church. And we have to start with this fundamental understanding that everything in the church should be just so. Everything should be just right, because as you think about this, have you noticed how easily we are baited into the pursuit of perfection? Human beings are infatuated with perfection. I, I, uh, my wife and I talk about this all the time. We're so glad we didn't get married in the age of Instagram. We got married before Instagram. We got married before Pinterest, and I praise God for that. <laughs> because everything has to be just so. 
And even though you would say, well, I know it won't be perfect, your expectations are that it would be perfect. Even just the other day, one of my former students, I was a youth pastor for years, graduated from college, and she had this perfect graduation picture of tossing her cap in the air. And my wife said, I'm so glad I didn't graduate from college during Instagram. Thank God. We are baited into perfection, and we are very infatuated with perfect things. We want our life to look a particular way. And believe me, if you saw photos from my wedding, you'd be like, yeah, that was before Instagram. Um, It was a beautiful wedding. But (laughs) the perfection, it's so sneaky. Again, we would always say, and we would throw out this kind of um, ideal that, no, not everything should be perfect, but we in the end believe it. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, strangely, I don't criticize that. I empathize with it. As a pastor, I feel the pressure to blow your mind today on Sunday. For you to leave, just be like, whoa, that was amazing, right? I have this, I, I am like maybe many of you involved in ministry tempted by perfection. The church is tempted by this perfectionism. This, but you don't even have to, you don't even have to call it perfectionism. Because all of us, even if we would not call ourselves a perfectionist, would know the feeling of the pressure of getting something just right. A career, a relationship, a new season of life where we want to make something just so. You see, the church is tempted in the same way. And as a pastor, I empathize with that feeling. When people say things like church is the hope of the world, I'm like, whew, deep breath. <laughs> I lead that. <laughs> what about even these passages in the Bible, right? Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh my gosh, I, we got to build this strong church where the gates of hell would not prevail against it. It's a high bar. How about this from Paul in Ephesians 3.10? It says that through the church, actually through this vehicle, the church, through awakening, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Is that a tall order? It's a tall order. That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The book of Acts, it tells this story of the beginning of the church. And it's interesting how pastors will select chapters and verses from the the story of the early church, in order to paint this very idealistic, almost utopian vision of the church. You've maybe heard these passages before. This is just from the beginning of the uh, story of the church. Acts chapter 2, look at this, verse 42. It says that they, the church, were, they devoted themselves to look at this, to, to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. It says, awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Look at, and as they believed they had everything in common, they're selling their possessions, they're praising God in verse 747, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord's adding to their number every day. And many pastors, this is a great text to preach on. I've preached on it before, but we'll take this passage and say, let's be like that. Let's be like, let's just do that. Everybody cool with that? Awesome. Okay. And then that's an easy sermon. So like, you should just be like that. Or what about Acts 4? Another utopian vision of the church. Okay, the full number, Acts 4, verse 32. The full number of those who believed of one heart and soul, and everyone didn't have anything that belonged to him. They had everything in common, and they had great power there. Look at 34. There wasn't a needy person among them. Everybody was just giving what they had. It says that they even laid their property and their finances down at the apostles' feet. And they're like, this is everything. This is this crazy utopian vision of the church. And again, we can take a text like that and just, hey, be like that. 
and, and the sermon's over, and that's the vision of the church that we're given. And that's the pressure we feel as pastors to deliver this. However, I just read you less than 10 verses out of a book that has 1,006 verses. I just read you sections of two chapters of a book that has 28 chapters. Do you think this isn't the full picture? You see, the problems with the interpretations of these verses is often summed up in a very key biblical hermeneutic trick, a little Bible interpretation. If you're ever having trouble with reading the Bible, here's a very quick uh, uh, life hack for reading your Bible. Keep reading. Like, if you have a problem with something in the Old Testament, just keep reading. If you got a problem with something in the New Testament, just keep reading. Like, so many people, Chris, Chris, oh my gosh, what, uh, Genesis 2, and then Genesis 3, and then what? Hey, whoa, keep reading. <laughs> keep reading. The story is going to unfold. The narrative is going to build. There's nuance coming. There's, there's sophistication to this narrative. It is not a document you pick up and read like Harry Potter. This is a collection, a library of resources that flip across different continents and cultures and languages and time periods. Attention must be paid to it. And likewise, with just the book of Acts, if you're looking at it, which I'm a huge fan of paper Bibles and the day of the digital, and you just look at this, you can see actually in between these different sections of the document, there's tons of complexity in the middle. You see, we understand these verses that I just read as prescriptive, these verses from Acts. In other words, we see them as, this is what you should do. But they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. See, in, in actuality, a lot of your Bible is just describing stuff that happens. People say, Chris, do you know polygamy is in the Bible? I'm like, I do. It just describes it. It doesn't tell you to marry multiple wives. In fact, if you follow the narrative, these guys' lives end in disaster, partly because of their disobedience to the marriage teaching of the scriptures. Just simple Bible hermeneutics here, but it's important because people find massive problems with scripture where they're not taking into account a prescriptive reading versus a descriptive reading. There are times certainly where there are commands that we are given from God, but there's also times where it's just like, hey, this is what it was like. This is just a description of the church. It was like this at this time. There's also other descriptions of the church, by the way, that we'll get to that are very problematic. Secondly, we understand these verses as the full picture, right? And this is what I'm just trying to say. We understand that it's a full picture, but it's really just the partial. It's really just a snapshot of the church during a particular time. But if you want to see a fuller picture of the church, just keep reading. Just read the rest of the books of Acts, and you will see that the picture Luke, the author of this book, the history of the early church in the book of Acts, he is not painting a utopian vision of the church. In a full picture, it's a very messy and complex community that all these people are committing to. Look at this. In Acts 2 verse 1, there's the story of Pentecost, which is all these miraculous visions and people with different languages and understanding each other. It's this miracle that happens in the first four verses. But what people forget is that just a handful of verses earlier, they were dealing with a betrayal. You see, Judas, one of their leaders of the movement that Jesus was handing the keys of the kingdom to, these apostles who had been with Jesus and studied with Jesus for three years, and he was saying, go and make disciples. One of them betrayed his master, Jesus. Judas did this. He betrayed, and he felt so guilty and so ravaged by his guilt, he committed suicide. That's an issue. There's this mess in the early church in Acts chapter 1 where they're dealing with how do we replace this person who betrayed us and then fell into a darkness that we couldn't get him out of. How do we do that? 
How do we move on? You see, we, we, miss, we just skip over that and we get to Acts 2 and we're like, see, this is what we should be like. <laughs> and when we've missed the mess of the early church, likewise, look at ver, um, that verse in 242, this beautiful picture of the community. They had everything in common, adding to their number every day. Do you know that just a chapter and a half after that, their main uh, leaders of the movement, Peter and John, are arrested. They're arrested. Now, in America, we don't understand this, but if you make friends, um, as I've been fortunate to make friends, countries like the Middle, in Middle Eastern countries and uh, certain countries in Asia and India, uh, people suffer, like, th- their lives are at stake. And the church from the get-go had that as an opposition, that their leaders would be captured and arrested. Do you think that was an issue? Do you think that was a problem they had to sort through? Could you imagine the administrative deal that had to happen with freeing those prisoners? Uh, These are things, again, we just read over them and then we get to like the beautiful parts of the church. How about Acts 4, the one I read you about, they're all selling their land to each other. Do you know that that passage actually sets up the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who are two people that withhold their belongings from the community? They withhold their belongings from the community and they lie about it and they drop dead in a Sunday service. Now, I want to be very clear. The, the scriptures does not say that God kills them, by the way. They just die that Sunday, okay? Is that an issue? If someone dies in your Sunday service, I can tell you, that's not the perfect church. That's not the vision of the utopia. That's, that is a nightmare. That's an issue. That's a problem. And see, these are things we skip over, not understand. Okay, I've just taken you through five chapters of Acts. It has 28 by 15, you get this theological emergency where all of a sudden, see, it was a Jewish movement until chapter 13-ish. Uh, and there's all these Jews being converted. They knew what to do with converted Jews. But all of a sudden, the Gentiles, the non-Jews began to be converted and a whole theological mess was on their hands because they were like, well, these guys are saying they're claiming the name of Jesus, but they are not circumcised. They don't follow our feasts and our holidays and they don't follow our Sabbath. And so what do we do? Do we have them follow all the Jewish stuff? And by 15, they're having an argument in Jerusalem because all the leaders have gotten together and they go, what do we do? Oh, and you thought theological differences was something of the 21st century. (laughs) Just keep reading. You see, so many people say, Chris, we got to get back to the first century church. We got to be more like the first century church. And I say, "Uh uh-uh. I don't want to. (laughs) Have you read 1 Corinthians? <laughs> I mean, have you read the documents of the correspondence between the leaders? It's a, it's a mess. God has not handed us the first century church to lead. He handed us the 21st century church to lead. And that church that you and I have been given has its own set of complexities and its own set of messes that we've got to deal with today. And to neglect that and want to return back time to this era is to neglect the thing God has handed you. Albeit imperfect, albeit difficult, albeit strained. You see, God has not asked us to make the perfect church, but a faithful church. And so the question is not, how do we create at awakening the most perfect church for all people to come to? No, the question is, how are we faithful to Jesus? How can we be faithful to Jesus? And I will argue that the correspondence letters between the earliest documents of the Christian movement from Acts and on in your New Testament are sorting through that exact question. It is not sorting through the question, how do we build a utopia for the church where everybody comes in, they all get along, they share their belongings, and everything works out. No, no, no. It's in the midst of the madness of the modern world, how do we commit to each other and commit to Jesus? That's what the documents are about. And if you don't believe me, 
Just turn, you're in Acts, turn to the right to the first document, Romans. Romans is the first correspondence uh, that we have just kind of chronologically, or uh, I guess through the codex, through just moving through the pages. If you move from Acts to Romans, and you go to the very end of Romans, you'll see what's at the end of almost every New Testament letter. At the end of every New Testament letter, the leaders start to just give prescriptive uh, notes. Here's what you need to do. Very practically, here's what needs to happen, and here's where you need to go, and here's how you need to commit. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome that had their own set of issues, but I think from the first century to the 21st century, we can span to answer the question, how do we build a faithful church? How do we embrace the imperfections and build a faithful church? Look at Romans 15, verse 1. It says this, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I'll I'll just stop right there. Paul is already acknowledging that there will be strong and weak in his communities. Not perfect. A perfect community has all strong people. Perfect community has everybody who's on the same page. He's like, there's going to be people in different walks of life and different seasons of faith, and the strong have the obligation to not please themselves, but to help the weak. That's the commitment that we're going to make. Verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build, himself, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached, you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, that's like the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Old Testament scriptures, we actually might find hope. Five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Notice, perfection is not in this text. It is a recognition of the imperfection and commitments to things God is asking us to do as we enter into that imperfect church. Five commitments of a faithful church that I see in this text. It is not an exhaustive list. It's just the list I see the text speaking to us. Number one, we commit to the weak, tired, and lonely. Look at verse one, look at four and five. The weak, those who are on the outside, those who are, who are feeling lonely and discouraged, we are going to commit to those who are lonely and weak and tired. And all the more this should be ringing in our ears after this week in American culture. Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, these two famous people who, from a millennial's perspective, would have had it all between wealth and experiences. You travel the world and you have all the money to do it. And yet we learn this week's horrifically that darkness does not discriminate. And so what does the church do? The church doesn't say, doesn't pretend like the darkness doesn't exist. The church doesn't whitewash the darkness. The church doesn't offer simple platitudes to enter into that. No, no, no. The church commits to the people in its environment that are weak, tired, and lonely. And they might be rich, and they might be poor. But just as darkness doesn't discriminate, the grace of God does not discriminate. And God's grace through his people should meet all people at their ways of life, no matter where they're at. And so, are you weak and tired and lonely? Welcome home. I mean, we have a prayer team that will be up here for our second half of worship that would love to pray for you. And by the way, even if you're just feeling bummed out, it doesn't have to be this deep and dark depression, although it might be. 
Wherever you find yourself, we at Awakening are committing to you. If you feel tired, if you feel lonely, if you feel like you can't handle the next week, our prayer team, we are here for you. If, if it's, you're uncomfortable, fill out a connection card. You can come talk to me, come talk to somebody. We want to be here for you. But the way that darkness is exposed is through the light, and so bring it to light. Bring it to light. We're gonna commit to you. That's a commitment of a faithful church saying, it's messy, it's difficult, it's not for Instagram, but we're committing for you, to you, on your behalf. Number two, we, we commit to neighbors and outsiders. People who don't look like us, who don't believe what we believe, who don't have the same life stage that we have, who don't have the same life plan that we do. We commit to people who feel like they're on the outside. That's why at Awakening, we try to not use as much churchy language as possible to commit to those who feel like they're outside of church, feel like they don't belong, right? And to our neighbors, just the people around us, we commit to those people. You see that in verse two when Paul says, please your neighbor for his good. Build him up. Live for your neighbor, not for yourself. That's the commitment of a faithful church. Now, if you bring in neighbors and outsiders, though, is that gonna mess with your vibe of church culture? Absolutely, in the best of ways. Because they're gonna be the ones who go, hey, I don't feel like I belong here. And that makes us as the church go, wait a second, why? Maybe we've been wrong. That's the humility that leadership can have when we meet neighbors and outsiders. Number three, we commit to encouragement and endurance. You see in verses four and five, endurance and encouragement, those two words are coupled twice back to back. That's Paul trying to emphasize something, that in church you're gonna need the endurance, you're gonna need the encouragement because here's the secret to ministry and to life in church, guys, it's slow. In fact, in two weeks, not next week, but the week after to close the series, I'm gonna talk on that, that, that church and ministry work is not instantaneous. All of Jesus' metaphors can often be thrown into two categories, agriculture and baking. Do you think that has anything to say to you about your Christian life? We expect churches to change instantly. We expect churches to move fast. God's, the history of God's church would tell you it's slow. It's slow, it's difficult. That's why we need encouragement and endurance. Number four, we commit to unity in worship. Right at the end of this passage, it shows Paul saying, that we're going to lift our voice with one voice, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with one voice. Let me, let me just drop this in, 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 into this point. Um, you're on the worship team. You're on the worship team. I know you think this is the worship team, but you're on it. And it's why, and I, I don't want to like make anybody feel too bad today, but it's why you need to be on time. <laughs> We need to show up because we're joining with one voice to glorify God. And, and, and so the, the worship team gets here really early and prepares to lead us, to be the ones out in front. But all of us are joining with one voice because, here's why, you spend your whole week convincing yourself and being convinced that you're different from everyone else. Someone says, hey, they don't come from the culture you come from. They don't come from the background. They're not like you. You're your own individual. And we have leaders in this country that are trying to divide us in every possible way. Here's what worship does. It emphatically says no. We are of one voice, we have one savior, and we sing one song even if we don't like it. Yeah. We, we look at that song and we go, I'm joining with this one voice because these are my people. 
even though you, you believe, you know, you're different than me and you look different, you come from a different background and you're older or younger or whatever, we come together with one voice to glorify one God. You're on the worship team and you need to tap into that because worship is like logging on in some ways to like what's happening in heaven, which is exactly that. People of all races, backgrounds, cultures, denominations, worshiping Jesus. And so you come to worship on time to be able to go, ah, to correct yourself. I am not a unique individual floating about in my beautiful snowflake. <laughs> I'm one voice glorifying one savior. Let's humble myself a little bit. Let's get into it. What we're stunned by in this passage, at least what I'm stunned by, is that in the acknowledgement of the imperfect church, finally he calls us, he says we commit to Christ at the end. See, because Paul says a couple of times, there's this one passage in that section where he says, in accord with Christ, or welcome people as Christ has welcomed you. It's this strange unity that in committing to God's church, you're committing to the father of the church, to the founder of the church. That in fact, to commit to Christ means to commit to his family. And that finally and fully, we are committing ourselves to Christ because the stunning conclusion is that the church is messy, broken, imperfect, but that doesn't mean you run from it. The church is messy, broke, broken, and imperfect, so run to it. Commit to it, be faithful to it. Because what if something in your life was more important than you having the perfect church? What if you having the perfect community, perfect experience, everything going the way you wanted it to go, what if there's something more important in your life going on like this? Like God wants you to teach you how to love people who are different from you. That God wants you to experience community with those who have different political opinions than you do. That God wants you to experience community with someone who's weak and struggling when you're doing fine. And you just want all these great friends around you who like compliment you and love you. And God's like, there's something more go going on in your life. I want you to learn to love people that are different from you. Because I want to teach you how to listen. And what if God had this project in your life that he was doing that he's trying to let you in on and when you reject the church because it's been imperfect, you're rejecting a kind of work God is doing in you internally. This isn't easy. But God is with us, telling us, come to the broken church. I'm inviting you to the broken church. When I was young in middle school, my uh, house was kind of the house where people, uh, you know, they all hung out. It was like, you know, there's always that house where like the parents are chill, but they also are like the parents have the respect for the other parents, you know, and they're like, I feel good about my kid being at this house. It's kind of the, the house that like the meals happen at, all the sleepovers happen. My house became that, nothing about me, but because my mom was so awesome and my dad were great. And she would feed all these junior high boys like tons. And upon reflection, she really forked over a lot of money. Uh, I mean, we would have these times where, uh, man, we'd wake up in the morning and just tons of food. My mom would prepare. We'd be playing Xbox all night or something dumb and like wasting our time. And my mom would feed us and encourage us. And our house became this great house to just hang at. And our table began to be full. My brother and I are very close in age. And sometimes his friends and my friends would be in the same house at the same time. And we'd have these big meals. And finally, when we got to high school, my mom and dad, they said, we're going we're gonna to invest because we were also hosting Christmases and we were hosting Easter and Thanksgiving and all this stuff. She's like, we're going to just, we're going to buy a great big table. And my mom and dad, they custom ordered this massive marble table. It was stunning. 
It was like beautiful. It, 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 was, it was custom made and cut and rounded at the edges, this shining piece of marble. And we would th- just throw tons of people around there. And I have these amazing memories of some of the best Christmases with my family there, some friends there for my 18th birthday, just like these amazing moments of like, this, this is like what the table's all about. This is what it's all about. Um, and then when I was 19, my dad left. And the whole culture of my home changed. And after my dad left, I had moved out. My brother lived in uh, Boston. My sister was in Michigan. And all of us were living all over the place. And that table started to take a different meaning as my dad began to leave. And we started to have really difficult times around that table. And and I'll never forget, maybe you've had a meal like this, a a meal that's not a meal. You you get together, and it was this infamous Christmas, one of the first years my dad was, was, was leaving, and my sister came home, my brother came home, and I came home, and we sat around that table, and we were with each other, but not with each other. Do you, do you know what I mean? We, we often just spent that afternoon or evening not listening to each other, but listening to the silent clinking of glasses and silverware. It was awkward. It was difficult. It was, it was, it was painful. And I'll, I'll never forget from that point on, that table kind of took a different meaning where we had this great vision for what it might be like when in all reality, it was, became a source of pain. A year later, my dad divorced my mom and my mom moved to this um, condo in, in downtown Portland and she took the table with her. And we tried to recreate these meals as much as possible without the fullness of our family together. And we had some success. It was okay. And, and then years later, my mom remarries this, this, uh, to this great godly man. And, and they build a home, to, they have a home together. And they, they come into the house and my mom says, I have this perfect spot for the table. It's outside and our family's kind of getting this renewed energy. This godly man enters into our home and uh, we, we have this renewed sense of like life and vitality. And my mom's like, I'm gonna put the, the marble table outside. There's this beautiful uh, stone fireplace outside. This is up in Oregon with a beautiful overhang and the lush greenery everywhere. And over the summers, we're gonna have these great meals. And, and, and then one winter, an Oregon storm passed through and the, the, the overhang that the table was under collapsed and shattered the marble table into dozens of pieces. And finally, I remember thinking that the wreckage and complexity of that table is finally over and that it's dead. And it's kind of a relief in some ways that I could maybe walk away from the complexities that that brought and it was in some ways kind of a step for me. Then that Christmas, my sister's in town and my brother's in town and we're all together at my mom's place with her new husband and we're kind of done with wrap, unwrapping presents and in that kind of malaise you're in at the end of unwrapping presents, chilling, drinking coffee and my mom's like, hey, I got one more thing. And she comes out and she presents us each with these very heavy wrapped pieces about this big and we each, she says, yeah, I want you to unwrap it all at the same time. And we unwrap it, and it is personalized carved squares of the table with padding underneath it. And it's refined edges and presented in a perfect rectangle. And my mom says, I know the table broke, but I want you to have this and to put it in your table to remember that, you know, our family is a family of hospitality and generosity. And I know it's not the table, 
but in some ways it would represent what our family is to be. And my mom could have thrown away the table. My mom could have thrown it in the garbage, but instead she decided to put money and time into this to create, recreate some type of remnant of what, what once was. And, and I'll never forget, you know, you could go to my brother's house in Los Angeles, my sister's house in Michigan, my house right here. And each of us have these stone cut marble pieces that we've put on our dining room tables and in our homes in order to represent something that was broken that has not lost its meaning. And isn't that God's church? Over history and time, God's church has been broken and reshaped, destroyed in some places, broken deeply. And yet, isn't he now at awakening, recreating a remnant in order to gift to you and to me to say, it's not perfect, but could you be faithful to its vision? Is there something that you could commit to more deeply that you could throw away? Yes, it would be easier. Yes, it would be less painful. But is there something precious in the midst of it? God has not given us a perfect church and a perfect table. Maybe even personally in your life, you've gone to several churches and leaders have let you down and people in communities have disappointed you and you have found yourself going through seasons as my table went through seasons and finally coming to a broken place. place. But doesn't it mean in the gospel, when we know the gospel story, that brokenness does not negate meaning, but it actually enhances it. You, you see, the table, albeit broken, albeit dysfunctional, albeit not even a table, some would argue, now in my home has deeper meaning than the table originally had. Because broken things in God's economy are not finished things. Broken things are just the start of something new. And I wonder... Are you waiting for the perfect church or the perfect ministry or the perfect table when God has given you a piece and said, be faithful with it? In, 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 the, in the grand scheme of things, in the historical account of the church, awakening is just a sliver. Awakening is just a piece. But by God's grace, we're going to be faithful with what God has given us. We're going to be called to a commitment level that God has given us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in a time when the church was more imperfect than it is today in America, if you can believe it. Bonhoeffer's great ethical conundrum and his, his leadership around him, it was about siding with this evil regime or not. And believe it or not, sanctions of God's church were siding with the regime of evil, with Hitler. And Bonhoeffer opposed that and decided to commit to his community, albeit imperfect, but oppose the regimes of evil, but still call people to commit to God's church. He didn't say, well, because the church is going in with this awful evil regime, I'm going to just, you know, abandon it entirely. He says, nope, I'm going to take my peace and be faithful with it. This is what he says. Those who love their dream of a Christian community, more than the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earned, and sacrificial. Let me ask you a question. Do you love the church, or do you love your image of the church more than the people sitting next to you? In other words, do you love the ideal that you think awakening should be more than awakening? 
Bonhoeffer would say, even though your intentions are earned, honest, and sacrificial, you're harming the church. In my generation, my generation says, I want to love Jesus, but I don't want to commit to the structure of the church. Because it's, there's all these politics tied into it. There's all this complexity in America during this time of like what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be an evangelical? What does it mean Protestant or Catholic or anything like that? And we have decided to throw the table away. But this is not the call of Scripture. The call of Scripture is handing you a remade broken piece and saying, will you be faithful with it? I think it, it's complicated at Awakening because of our story. Some of, some of you were here like in the beginning of awakening. Like before it was even a church, it was a young adults ministry. And when you heard that this church was going to be planted, you were going to be a part of it. You had this ideal of what awakening should be. And here we are six years later and we're not what you thought it would be. And so your ideals have in some way been crushed or disappointed or let down. Could I invite you to re-examine what you're even here for? We're not here to build a perfect church. We're here to commit to what God has asked us to commit to. Likewise, maybe, maybe some of you are brand new. Like you started coming Easter or last week or today is your first day. And you're like, this church is perfect. Might I be the first one to tell you we're not. And that's good news. I mean, I'm going to try to prevent it in every way possible. But at some point... Awakening will let you down. It won't be what you want it to be. It won't respond the way you want it to respond. Leadership will make decisions you disagree with. And maybe that's already happened or it's bound to happen. I'm going to, prevent, I'm going to try to prevent that as much as possible. Our leadership team is trying to prevent that as much as possible. However, we know the picture God's given of the church. And it's not the perfect, pristine marble table. It's a remnant. It's a peace that we are being asked to commit to, to lay down our dreams and ideals for the sake of our neighbors, to lay down our opinions about right church practice for outsiders, our ability to lay down what we want to do every Sunday so we can help and encourage the weak and tired and lonely. That even though it's harder to get here on time, it's something we're committing to because we want to be faithful to lifting up the name of Jesus together We want to commit to the things God has asked to commit to. How, though? Maybe you're saying, how can I be sure? Well, of course this is a step of faith, which, welcome to Christianity. Obviously, God wouldn't call you to do something that required zero faith. I mean, this is going to require some faith for us. But it's faith that is in the assurance of something coming. Friends, the way my table analogy breaks down is actually beautiful. You see, one day, we will in a reconstructed table. One day, God will gather his church together. And in heaven, on earth, God will assemble all tribes, tongues, languages, colors, orientations, cultures, generations, and all who claim the name of Jesus will bring their peace, and he will reform his table into one beautiful unification of his treasure, which is you. And one day we'll sit around that table laughing hysterically at how obsessed we got over the little piece we were given, missing the whole point, which is that one day we'd sit around the same table, that one day we would be able to say, I committed to this little piece and now look what God has made of it. Now look what God has brought. 
God has brought his people together and there's people I disagree with at this table. There's people who theologically I thought were off on earth and look, we're here. (laughs) We're here because God is so gracious and so good that he would take all of the broken pieces of every fraction of your life and put it together to have a feast. He's that good. He's that gracious. And the church has that large of a narrative to fit into. We are not floating in non-existent spirituality. We are committed to a historic Catholic, in the sense of universal, one universal, full, total church that God is building. And we can't see the whole picture, but we can see a part of it. And so friends, for the part you've been given, don't reject this table. I'm telling you, you will regret it. Because one day when we're around that table, we'll be celebrating at how good God is that he took the broken things he gave us and he rebuilt them. Let me pray. We need you, God, at awakening because we cannot do this on our own. When we do this on our own, we imagine a perfect community, a perfect church. And when we invite your cross and your story into our story, God, when we actually embrace who you really are, we realize we really need you, God. We can't do this on our own. It's going to take your power and your help to help us lead and participate in a messy, broken church. And so I'm praying for those who are, from the beginning of awakening, they were here at the start of the church. And I'm praying for those who joined this week and last week and four weeks ago and everyone in between, God. Would you grant us the wisdom and discernment we need to commit here? To say, I'm in. This is my church, albeit imperfect, so that we know one day we would feast together at your table. Give us that big of a vision and encourage us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion is offered up here at the front because... We need to remember the Lord's great table, the feast that is awaiting us. And so when you come to the table, remember that this is Jesus' body broken for you in the bread. And in the cup, it is the blood spilled for the new covenant. These small tables point to the great larger feast we will all one day partake in. And so when you take this of the cup and you take of the bread, remember that God is building his church, that God is recreating his church. And that it is going to be by his power that we at Awakening continue to be faithful. If you need prayer, our prayer team is going to be up here. We invite you during worship to come forward for any need you have. But let's turn to God now and worship him with one voice.